Dear God, I ask that your Holy Spirit be here just now. I ask that, um, that we experience something of what it's like to be one with you um, just in this seminar today. Help us to have um, good conversation. Help us to Help us to see the ideal that you could have for us as it truly is and not as man tends to make it. We recognize that we cannot do anything good or have anything good but that you give it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Mm. The concept of the mystery of of God um, being God in us is not limited actually to to one you know, little place in the Bible. You can find it in Ephesians. And Ephesians is a fine place. We'll turn there now if you would. Ephesians is a fine place to talk about marriage. We're going to spend most of our, our time today in Ephesians, actually. But I want to set kind of a precedent for why I believe that this model can spin off into Eros or can spin off into the love between a husband, between a husband and a wife. If you will, turn to Ephesians 1, 8 and 12. 1, 8 through 12, excuse me. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. It says, Which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will. Okay? We talked about the mystery of God being the concept of God being in us. So the mystery of His will is His desire, Christ's dying request to be in us. The mystery of His will, according to, the good, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the, of the times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in Him. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. So this is basically saying at the beginning of Ephesians that you know, this purpose in going about writing this is that we'll have this experience of the mystery of God being made one in a way that actually comes out in, you could say in addition to testifying, glorifying God. And, and, and that's Paul's impetus. That's what he's passionate about. He describes in Colossians, he's chained to it. I'm a slave to this. But that's a beautiful thing for him. Okay, another place in Ephesians, I believe it's Ephesians 3. I um, mean, we'll look at 1 through 4. He, he uses some of the same language. It says, For this reason, I, Paul the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation He made known to me the mystery. Okay, so this is once again talking, and the mystery as we established last time is God in us. So the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets. Okay, so he's, he's saying throughout Ephesians, it's very much a theme of this mystery of God or this oneness with God being revealed. And we're going to spend a lot of time in Ephesians today. We're going to move now to one verse because we want to establish something. We're going to spend a lot of time in looking at the model for marriage, the model for agape, God's love coming out in the experience between a husband and a wife 
comes from Ephesians. Much is said. It, it tends to be controversial, but in my opinion, it's controversial because it's not understood well. And when we understand it well, um, I, I believe today you're going to find this to be very beautiful, perhaps for many of you even shocking. Um, but let's first, I'm not making up the idea that God's love comes out in the love between a man and a woman. I'm not making that up. That's not like this little idea that Jeff thought about back in some corner and is now proposing. There's two books in the Bible that actually do not use God's name. Does anyone know what those two books are? Esther is one of them. Something interesting about Esther, I'm told, I haven't actually read this in the Hebrew, but I've been told by many people that um, at the middle of Esther, there's a um, chiastic kind of thing that happens, which means that at the center... When this is what I've been told, once again, this could be incorrect. I probably should have validated it, but I've heard it quite a few times by people that tend to be scholarly and all of that. In the very middle, when Esther says, "If I perish, I perish," the first letter of those that phrase spells out Yahweh. So, so the, the theme of Esther is that God is kind of this unseen, maybe, maybe not out there overtly, but he's very much affecting the circumstances of life, and especially the people who are dedicated to him. So grammatically, it's actually reflected in the text, if in fact that is true. What I can speak much more deliberately to, though, is the second book that doesn't use God's name directly. Does anyone know what that book is? Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon. If everyone will turn to Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse... 6. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6. It says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Okay, we read that and we're like, okay, you know, love burns. Love's burning passion. We're like, that's really cool, that's really beautiful. Some people know that to be very accurate. And we say that's really neat. There's something very amazing about that is the root word for vehement flame is connected to the same, the same word as the glory of God. So when it's saying the flame, it's, it's, it's like a fire. It's not just saying that the love between a man and a woman is just this burning in your bosom. It's saying that this is, is like the, the flame of Yahweh. And so the, the passion... Literally the passion, and Song of Solomon is a very passionate book, that literally the passion to be shared between a husband and a wife is to be something of the, the flame of God, the burning of God. And that's, that's a very powerful thing. Ellen White counsels us that, that the, the marriage and a, a family, rightly ordered, is far better witness than what I'm doing right now, which is preaching and teaching far better witness. And so, and so we can see that the power there is not just a simple little thing. It's actually profound in the possibility for experience. So having said that, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. It's a very controversial passage, but an important one nonetheless. When I first was studying this, I was the interim pastor at a church where my in-laws, now my in-laws, they were not my in-laws then, um, attended. I was in a park actually preparing for this particular, this particular sermon and I was trying to avoid the first phrase. It says in verse, um, verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands. 
I didn't want to say that. I was single. I was like, this isn't for me, man. I'm not married. What can I say about this? But God had really put it on my heart to speak this message. And I was, I was trying to get away from it. I'm like, oh, you know, like submit. I looked it up in the Strong's, you know, because maybe I can find something about submission and I can just kind of avoid submission. And you look it up in the Strong's and oh my, it is such a strong word. It's like put yourself subordinate to and and it has allusions to slavery and stuff like this. And I'm like, ah, that didn't help at all, you know. <laughs> and, and I'm sitting there in the park kind of going through this and this woman... I never went to the park to, to work on a sermon. I always went to what we call the Bat 40, where, um, where I teach, actually, at Bass. Um, it's just woods, you know? That's where I always went. But I had to go in to help a friend that day, and I'm like, you've got to drop me off here. So I happened to be there, right? And this lady was, was jogging around this circle that, that was in the park, and she came past me once or twice, and she sees me writing. So she comes up to me, and she says, are you journaling? I said, no, I'm, I'm actually writing a sermon. Oh, you're a believer. And there's just this really vibrant, she's about, I would guess she was around 45 years old, a very vibrant person, excited to be alive, just happy, just a really nice person. Oh, you're a believer too. We start talking about God, and I'm like, here's my chance to get out of it. I said, so, um, since you're a believer, yeah, what do you make of this verse? I could hardly even read it, right? You know, like, what, what, do you think of, what do you think of wives submit to your husbands? And she says, oh, that's easy. I submit to and obey my husband. I'm like, oh, you didn't help me at all. You know, I'm like, but I want to meet your husband. Like, what, what's he? I'm like, what's he like, you know? And she's like, she says, but you don't understand. I mean, we're down in deep south, south Mississippi. She says, you don't understand, honey. He adores me. And um, in that little dialogue there really sets the stage for um for ephesians 5 but point is like many people i was trying to avoid what the bible was really saying because i didn't want to be the one to say that and i'm trying to say kind of like maybe like jonah i don't know if he says but i'm like i don't have authority to speak on this i'm not married god like get me out of this this is terrible but um but really when you study this word submit it is to wives it's speaking very specifically to wives and it's a very strong word. And we would do disservice to the Bible to make it anything. And I realize there's a lot of women in here, so just hear me out. Stick through the second half because it's going to get better. But I assure you, the word submit, it's a very strong word. It's everything that it entails. Everything that it entails. And see, what Satan has done is in today's world, he's made submission a very bad thing. He's made submission evil. The idea of submitting to something else, he's made very bad there's something else he's done that's very evil as well. He's made the word love a very shallow word. I say, in fact, I think I said earlier maybe, I love Thai food. Is I love Thai food the same thing that I'm saying when I say I love you, Jolanda? I mean, you, really. Or I love the color blue? Or I love, you see what I'm saying? We use the word love so frivolously. It's this, it's that, it's that. But we've made, Satan has made the word love very shallow. He's made the word submit very dirty. The Bible changes those things completely. Submit is not dirty at all, and love is anything but shallow. Let's look at this. It says, verse 22, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. In other words, like to the Lord. So a wife experiencing this agape experience where she is in a submissive relationship, supposed to be like in her relationship with God. Does that make sense? So, so her submission is supposed to, supposed to teach something of the model of what it means to be in a submissive relationship with God. There's obviously much more to this story. But when I, when I talk to my um, 
I was still trying to get out of talking about submission. I talked to my grandparents. I said, so what do you, you know, what do you make of Ephesians 5? And grandma, like, that's the worst one to go to. You know what she's going to say, right? And she's just the same thing. Submit to him. Submit to and obey. A lot of times he's made a lot of choices that I didn't agree with because I was submitting to him. Like, grandma, don't tell me that. But in essence, that's what's at the core of this. And I have to develop a very, very strong concept of submission because if I don't, I'm going to do two things. One, I'm going to be unbiblical. And number two, if I do not give a strong concept of submission, then the love that follows is going to be shallow. Submit is submit, period. You will hear people try to take submit and turn it into the word respect. And it does carry with it the essence of respect. But it's more than just respect. Submit means submit, period. But there's a submit exclamation mark. And that's what I want to look at next. If you read in this, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is what? Head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And He is the Savior of the body. There's much that could be discussed there, but take one thing away. Submit means what? It means submit. Husbands. What does it say? Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present her to Himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Go back to the beginning. Husbands, love your wives just as what? Christ also loved the church and what? Gave Himself up for it. Think about this for a second, guys. When Christ loved the church, what did Christ have to do to love the church? He had to come to this earth, right? Love entails all that submission is with the added responsibility to initiate it. Christ submitted to the church. To the point of being crucified on the the cross, Christ submitted. He did not submit His character. He stayed in connection with His Father. But He submitted to the point of death in service. The difference between Christ, the reason it's not said that Christ submitted, the reason it doesn't tell husbands to submit is because they have, love carries with it all the responsibilities of submission with the added responsibility to initiate it. Submission is not call for initiation. If I'm going to submit, I'm going to stand here and take whatever you guys give to me. Right? But what the biblical concept of love is that I'm going to initiate submitting to you. I'm going to initiate serving you. I'm going to initiate doing what's best for you in spite of the cost to me, with the exception being our relationship with God. It's profound when you think the concept of love in the Bible is not this, oh, the husbands get the easy one. They just get to like their wives a whole lot. No. The husbands are called to initiate submission. They are to initiate what's best for their family. They are to, they are to put themselves at service for what's better for their families in, in their life. And I can tell you as a husband, this isn't easy. It doesn't come naturally for me to initiate submitting to my wife. It doesn't come naturally for me to initiate doing what's best for her. It's easy for me to use, oh, well, God's called me to this, or God's called me to that, so I, 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 you need to follow me and get in line with what I'm doing. Love entails everything submission calls for with the added responsibility to initiate it. 
a lot of people probably aren't married in here. What kind of guy are you going to even be open to? And let me tell you, there's a lot of counsel in the Bible, and this is kind of a little appendix or a side note. There's a lot of counsel in the Bible to bring other people into, into that um, process. There's a reason for that. Just because a guy tells you nice things and does a couple of nice things, that's very different than him being willing to, like Christ, initiate submitting to what's better for, for you. It's, it, it, takes, it takes nothing less than a man who's experiencing agape in his life. It takes nothing less than a man who's experiencing a relationship with God. It takes nothing less than a man who's in a submissive relationship with God in order for him to be the type of person that will love you with godly, with godly love. Does that make sense? It can, it can kill you not to have it. Because you'll try and you'll try and you'll try and he'll say all these nice things and do all these nice things. But keep in balance the idea that love is much more than I love blue or I love Thai food. Love is the call to initiate submission just as Christ loved the church and gave himself, as it says, up for her. It says, says, um, verse 26, it says that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So submit, period. But submit, exclamation mark. Men, you are called to submit. You're called to initiate it. Love carries with it everything that, everything that submission has, but with the added responsibility to initiate it. And think about this for a second. This is another one that's challenging. You hear about men being the priests of the home, right? They're to, they're to guide spiritually and all of this. It's hard to keep in focus the concept that our homes, our wives, and if you have children, our children, are to be the first ministry. Right here it says that he might, uh, verse 27, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Our job is to treat our wives like Christ treated the church. Giving them the word, giving, leading out in family worships, leading out and in initiating how God's character is in our homes to such a level that it has an effect on our, on our, wives, on our wives' life. Wives are to be the number one ministry of their husbands. It goes on. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become what? The two shall become one flesh. You get this concept of oneness. The mystery of God. Christ in us. But it doesn't just stop there. If Christ is in us, if we're made one with God, we'll be made one with each other. And the idea then follows through that if we're one with each other, obviously a husband and a wife would experience that at the most, at the most intimate level. Um, where were we at? Verse 30. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bone. For this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great what? This is a great mystery. I'm not making this up. You see the same theme coming up over and over and over. It's a mystery to have God in us. 
It's a, it's, a, it's a mystery to have that experience with Christ. But if we experience that, that oneness with Christ, it's going to come out in our relationships with other people, particularly our wives. So submit, period. Submission means sub- submission. Submit, exclamation mark. Love means submission, too, with the added responsibility to initiate it. And submit, question mark. Will we do it? Will we really do it? Because it's easy to talk about it. It's easy to sit here in a seminar and have a conversation about it. It's easy, to, it's easy to go on and on about and read all the books. I read a stack of books. I'm not joking to you. Like this high. Everything from I Kiss Dating to Goodbye to When God Writes Your Love Story. Trying to get it right. When the best stuff, the best stuff possible is right here in the Bible. You can't get anything better than Ephesians chapter 5. You can't get anything stronger than Ephesians chapter 5. You can't, can't get anything more biblical, obviously, than Ephesians chapter 5. But more beautiful than anything else is it says that this is a mystery, connecting it with the concept of in the last days, in the last days, when the, when the seventh trumpet is being preached all over the world, that what will come with that is a completion of the mystery of God, that being God in us. You have a major, major question to ask yourself. I don't care if you're married or if you're single. You have a major question to ask yourself. When you experience Eros, whether that's in the future or you're in a relationship now, are you going to adopt the biblical paradigm? Because what it teaches, what it teaches is that in my relationship, I am, Jeff is to love. Regardless of if my wife is or not. She is to submit to my what? She's to submit to my initiating what? Submission. That sounds a little weird, right? She's to submit to me initiating submission. And I'm to give to her. And as a result of her submitting to me initiating, to me initiating submission, then, then we're told that something beautiful and something good is going to come out of that. But the reality is, I can even tell by the looks on your face, this is a little confusing. It's a little weird, right? So I'm supposed to love, which means I'm supposed to be like God. She's supposed to submit to me, but I'm supposed to initiate her. I'm supposed to give submission to her. And then she's, that's going to result in a good relationship from her. That's, that's a little confusing. So she submits to me submitting. So what happens, right? What really happens? It's just kind of this little circular logic, right? Let me show you something incredible. Verse 20. says, Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting one to another in the fear of God. I'm supposed to initiate submitting to my wife. My wife is supposed to submit to me Initiating submission, which creates this big ball of submission, but what's really happening? The big umbrella is that, it's like I say, what's best for you? And she's like, no, no, what's best for you? No, what's best for you? No, what's, no, you, no you do it. No, you do it. No, you see what I'm saying? No, you buy that. No, you buy what you want. No, you, I mean, like, seriously. So we have this ball of submission rolling, but, under, but the overarching principle is that we're supposed to be in a submissive relationship to who? To God. So it creates the concept of me initiating submission to my wife, my wife submitting to that. And when there's, when there's confusion, it naturally brings a question of, okay, so what are we supposed to do? It sets us up to be in submission to who? To God. We're supposed to submit one to another in the fear of God. Do you know what the fear of God is? You know what the fear of God is? 
I'm afraid to do it right now. Normally when I teach on the fear of God, I just scream really loud at this point, and then people, at least someone jumps. I'll stand in the middle. I don't know why. I'm just a little scared to do that right now. So I'm not going to do it. What is the fear of God? Does it mean we're supposed to think, oh no, He's going to do something mean to us? He's going to hurt me? God doesn't want us to think we're going to hurt Him. But is God capable of hurting us? Yeah, I guess He's capable, but He's not going to. So, so what's really, what's supposed to think about that? If I was to yell really loud right now, and I already ruined it, so I'm not going to do it. Don't be scared. But um, if I was to yell really loud right now, your heart rates would go up. You would focus on who? Me. And you would kind of assess the situation. What do I need to do, right? Do I need to run because this bozo, bozo chaplain just screamed and who knows what he's going to do next? The fear of God is completely orienting ourselves on God. When you're afraid of something, there's no other word that I know of to teach completely orienting ourselves on anything. If you're afraid of something, your emotions, your body, your thinking, everything is focused on the thing you're afraid of. God wants us to have complete focus on Him that affects our emotions, that affects us physically, that affects the spirit. Everything focuses on Him. So the idea is, in marriage, that I'm supposed to initiate submission to my wife. That my wife is supposed to submit to me initiating submission. I'm supposed to be like God, regardless of... I'm supposed to be like God, regardless of if my wife is like God. I'm supposed to initiate submission, and that's going to then, then have an effect on her giving me love in return or initiating love in support. In fact, it says in the, at the end of the passage in, um, in Ephesians 5, see that you don't come to respect your husbands. In other words, see, you watch wives, this is going to work something out better in, in your experience. But when this circle is spinning, you've got to ask yourselves, well, what's supposed to really happen? We're supposed to be under God. The fear of God. Orienting ourselves completely on Him. I want to show you a couple other verses. Um, turn to Ephesians chapter... Are we still in chapter 5? Ephesians chapter 6, 17 through 20. It says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known what? The mystery of the Gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. You see, at the beginning of Ephesians... At the very beginning of Ephesians, Paul is teaching about this mystery of God being fulfilled. In the middle of Ephesians, he talks about the church. That's a different conversation. He talks about what? He talks about husbands and wives. And he tells wives with this really strong word that I really tried to avoid. Submit. He says, submit. You must submit. But then he tells the husbands. He says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what? Gave himself, gave himself up for it. So husbands, submit exclamation mark. You have the responsibility to initiate submission. And then you get into this situation, you have to ask yourselves, this is a very strong concept, and the reality is, we can all in here say, this, is, this sounds really good, and this is really good, but we're not capable of it. We're simply not capable of it on our own. Without a relationship with God, it's not going to happen. But if we have a relationship with God, then we, we as men learn how to be worthy of submission. 
And wives, you learn how to submit in a way that teaches us about how to be better husbands. And this circle starts to spin of which we, we care about each other so much that we're not concerned about our, ourselves and we almost get a little confused. Okay, I'm initiating it. She's initiating it. What's supposed to really happen? Well, I'm supposed to focus completely on God. And it creates an environment where God can then what? He can move the spinning circle whichever way He wants to go. And this was the passion of Paul. The passion of Paul was that the prayer of Christ in John 17 actually happen, I and them. And when, the, when that passion would actually happen, that then it would knit people together in such a way that it was a testimony to the Gentiles and to the entire world. So when we think of the gospel going to the world, it will take on forms like what I'm doing right now, speaking and teaching. But it will also, and in many, many ways, more importantly, take on forms of your marriages, of your relationships with, with your husbands or with your wives, someday or even now, being a testament of the model that God would have of oneness. And when, that, and when that happens, we're told, excuse me, we're, not when that happens, but we are told in, um, in Revelation 10.7 that this mystery of God will be fulfilled in this time in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It's a powerful message, guys. And you have this opportunity. There's more loves we could, we could go into, but um, I'm going to stop now and um, give time for a question and answer. And maybe other people would have something to add to what we're talking about. I've benefited from the last conversation as well. So um, having said that, any questions, any comments, anything? Um, Colossians 1, 6, let me think. Colossians 1, 21 through 29. I can, you can write down all the verses I've used today if you want after. Um, yes? How do you think that this concept relates to just our submission in general to each other, like within the church and the body of Christ? Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, Unless we're in a... Satan's really crafty in that one. Oh, did you want to answer that? Oh, the question... Can you tell me the question again? How the submission relates to our submission to each other. Right. How does, how does the concept of submission relate to um, us submitting to each other within the body of Christ? I, I personally think there's a very distracting thing that Satan uses because he does get us to submit, but in all the wrong areas. Simply put, we need to be in a submissive relationship with God, and if submitting to someone else violates our submission to God, then we go with submission to God. Simply put. And we've got to stick with that. And we've got to know God and be experiencing His agape, His, His love in our lives. And then, and then, we'll know, then we'll be able to stand up to submitting to the wrong things with each other. Um, that's the short answer, but honestly, that should be, filio really is what you're talking about, should be a whole other... Or their seminar. Or we, Sorry, I was just going to ask the same thing because, you know, there's the whole submission that you have with, with the church body. Mm-hmm. But then there's the entire thing to the, the government of the church, the relationship of the church, and, you know, setting the missions of the church. So it takes on some bureaucratic level as well. Sure. The, quest, the question is the bureaucratic, bureaucratic level and politics within the church. What do you do about submitting to that? Um, that's a fine question. It's one that. Um, 
I talked a little bit on the first, you know, my own struggle with that very thing. And I would bring up John fourteen twelve. Um, I talked about in that seminar. It's my favorite, favorite verse in the Bible. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me will do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. And so when we see problems in the church, we can see them as... Um, as things to be criticized, and we can bring weakness in that way, or we can take on the concept that maybe God wants to use me to be part of the solution. If he said he's willing to do greater things through me than he did through himself, then when we see problems in the church, we should see the possibility of us being, being a solution, no matter how big that problem is. And, and you know, that's not without... That's not without a biblical precedence. Look at most of the characters in the Bible that... and. Almost all of them saw problems in what was the equivalent of the church. And God used them because of their submissive nature to Him to actually make a difference. And that's why we, and a lot of it is, a lot of the Bible is actually the writings of these people over these issues. So I think we have a lot to go on to help with that. Yeah. Jesus actually said that the, that the people should follow the Pharisees because they sit in the seat of Moses. Right. They don't do what they do, right. what they say, because that's their, that's their, their leaders. Sure. But you can work with it. You can, like I say, you can work with them and you can actually uh, make a difference because somebody you might be one of them. I'll, I'll tell you something, just kind of a, a short testimony. If anyone else has anything, please you know, raise your hand. I, um, I struggle greatly with this question, greatly, because I'm an idealist. I don't see what is. I see what I believe, what I think should be. And, and it bothers me. It has bothered me a great deal. At the... But John 14 has tempered me. It's changed my focus. And um, long story, but at the general conference session two summers ago, we were there, and some of you may remember Elder Wilson's um, sermon where he, he talked about going forward. And I was just, at the end of that, I'm like, wow, you know, it's, it's like giving you permission to be a Seventh-day Adventist. I don't know, it sounds weird, but I was just very inspired by that. And somehow, closely following that session, um, I heard that there was a committee starting called the Revival and Reformation Committee. And I told my wife and my dad, I'm like, I'm not a committee guy. I just, you know, I'm on quite a few committees. It's just the nature of working in the church. <laughs> you know, there's committees, and it's necessary. I'm not trying to be critical of committees. But I heard of this Revival and Reformation Committee, and I was like, that is like the one committee from the local church to the GC. That's like the only committee in the entire church that I would really love to be on. Like, that would be amazing, right? And so it would come up in my head, and very similar to the story about how um, my wife and I came together. When it come up in my head, I tried to dismiss it, but I pray about it. God, if you want it to happen, that would be really cool, but um, yeah. I don't think there's any chance. So, so that's kind of how I, that's kind of how every time, every time it came up, that's that's how I prayed about it. There you got a little insight into how we came together. Um, and then about, I'd say two months maybe after the GC session, I get a phone call and I'm looking at it. It's a number I don't recognize, and I'm like, oh no way, you know what's this? And I almost ignored it, but I decided to answer it. And um, I said, hello, this is Jeff Marshall. And this is, hi, this is Jerry Page. And I'm like, no way. Because I knew that Jerry Page was the new ministerial director. And when he said, this is Jerry Page, I knew exactly what he was going to ask me. I knew exactly what he was going to ask me. Which was, anyone know? Do I want to be on? Do I have any eggs? <laughs> um, he, he asked me if I wanted to be on the Revival and Reformation Committee. So this is something I'm very passionate about. I very much care that our church... Be, re- be revived and be, be reformed. Reformed, being recreated, is also a good word for that. Being recre- you know, let's, let's do the right thing in the right way.
for the right reasons. And so um, that's just a short testimony of you know, God's working behind all this. And when we see, and it's, man, I feel like a hypocrite even saying this because I get discouraged. My wife has to remind me of things I'm saying right now. But God will work through you. God will give you opportunities. He's doing something that you don't even know. And, and I, on the Revival and Reformation Committee, I'm not the quiet guy. I mean, I'm the one with the least education, probably. I'm the, I'm the young little guy with no experience, et cetera, et cetera. But I talk a lot. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not shy. I say, you know, I speak, you know, what I believe in. And, um, and so I, I just say that, that story to say God will use you in our church. If you're willing to submit to him, if you're willing to stay true to him, um, and that takes perseverance. You have to keep making that same decision over and over. He will use you for purposes. If He shows you problems, He will use you for that. And, and don't be swerved from that. If God shows you problems, don't let it, don't let it um, make you complacent. Don't let it make you angry. Say, okay, so what are you going to do, God? Um, when I took off a year from college to try to figure some things out, a pastor, I asked a pastor, you know, what am I supposed to do with my life? That's a hard question to answer. Because I don't know what, you know, I mean, how can you start on this side? What do I want to be the rest of my life? Well, I don't even know who I am. How do I know what I want to be, you know? Like, that's a terrible question. But I'm trying to figure that out. And he put me through this little series of, you know, what's your spiritual gifts inventory and stuff like this. And there's this one place that says, what's your passion? And there's three categories, passion, spiritual gifts, and something else. I don't remember the other one. And for passion, there's like no questions to guide you to it. It's just like, what's your passion? I'm like, well, great. That's helpful. You know, you're not, you're not giving me anything. And I put um, complacency, fighting complacency. My, my passion is fighting complacency. And when the pastor looked at this, you know, we're going through it all, and he says, oh, complacency. He says, hmm. Can you think of anything else? <laughs> he's, like, he's, like, he's, like, he's like, what about marriage and family? And, you know, because you could fight complacency through that. And I still have that book somewhere. It's written, it's marked through, and something else is written there. But later I'm like, no way, man, I'm fighting complacency. That's what I'm, that's what I'm passionate about, you know. And so I just say, stay, you know, when God shows you things, stay focused, but stay connected with Him, and you'll have joy, and um, He'll use you. He promises to do it. He promises that this mystery of God will be completed in the last days. So he's, prophecy isn't, he's not messing around. This is for real. And so I say all of that, not, I'm trying not to be long-winded, but I am on that question because I care so much about it. And um, I know, I can tell you from my own testimony for reading the Bible, that God will use you to change the problems that you see. Um, I prom I, I I can give you that promise. I absolutely I believe it with everything I am. So any other thoughts? And feel free to share anything else you guys might have. Any questions? No? Well it's a little awkward. <laughs> <laughs> um I just encourage you all, please yeah. Oh, man. Suggestions of books or anything to continue further that thought. It's new to me. New to you? He's Greek, but we're Hebrew. Yes, I do. Um, That's a great question, and I may have opened up a huge conversation. The short answer is the book of Job. The book of Job teaches a very Hebrew paradigm. Um, In essence, man, I don't want to open up. The book of Job 
is very, very Hebrew. Greek Greek thinking tends to be along the lines of we discover truth through reason or through scientific exploration, in essence. Hebrew concepts of truth means we know truth by revelation from God. Does that make sense? And so they're very different. I mean, I'm... Some of my teachers might hit me for even trying to boil it down that simply. But in essence, that's, that's the differences. Hebrew thinking says, I will only know and understand as God reveals knowledge and understanding. Greek thinking takes a different approach. Yeah. Truth is based on who you know. Truth is based on who you know. Yeah. And in the Greek paradigm, it would be truth is based on what you know. Right. Is a little bit different. Yeah, that's well put. I've never thought of it that way. That's well put. And the statement was um, truth is based on who you know in Greek thi- in Hebrew thinking, but what you know in Greek thinking. Yeah, very good. And and there's something you know we got to be leery to every any time Satan always Satan doesn't invent anything. Greek thinking isn't completely evil by any stretch. Satan just takes good things and manipulates them. Certainly we can find some great value in exploring and discovering nature. Certainly the scientific, logical approach to things is very valuable. But ultimate truth, the foundational things, Hebrew thinking would say comes by revelation of God, where Greek thinking ultimately doesn't, doesn't take that approach. Um, I love this conversation. This is a lot of good. I, I did have a follow-up on Curious about my opinions of of an Arnia. Yeah. Um, my understanding, I, I've only read one of those books and I've seen one of the movies. So I would just start by saying, though I've read a lot of his apologetics, I've not read much of his children's literature. Um, C.S. Lewis attempted to take Greek characters and Greek concepts and tell a Hebrew story with them. It's, it's all your approach to missiology. <laughs> I don't believe the best approach for me to reach other people is to... Um, yeah, you can say baptize paganism. <laughs> is, to, is to take... Though, though there is much good that C.S. Lewis did, and I would be careful to say that, I would say when you take, for instance, um, what is, it, is it Pawn? The little little dude with... He's like half goat, half human. I mean, when you study what that guy is all about, bro, that's, messed, that's some messed up stuff. But, but it's very scary. But then you see him using it as, quote-unquote, kind of this good guide or something like that with the children. And C.S. Lewis would say he wanted people to see a... He wanted to te- give kids some concept that then when they got introduced to Christ, they'd say, oh, that's like this. And that sounds really good, but I think the real danger is that they, they'll stick with this other thing, or when they hear about pawn the bad, the bad pan, then, they'll, then, they, then they won't have their guard up to it. Does that make sense? And so I, I, my opinion is a much better way is to tell the truth directly. Um, read the Bible stories, you know. Yeah, it's been said this way, um, what we convert with is what we convert to. And um, I believe that's a very valuable phrase. 
what we convert with is what we convert to. So, and, and I would also add, I have benefited greatly from, from C.S. Lewis, but what happens is, I'll tell you, like apologetics today. Apologetics is basically a logical defense of God. Most of what Christian apologetics is, anything I've seen written on it or heard about it, it's C.S. Lewis-based. It's not, it's not Bible-based. And as Adventists, we can go much deeper in the question of the problem of pain. The problem of pain is, why, does bad, why do bad things happen to good people? And the C.S. Lewis, Lewis approach is free choice has to exist. Therefore, there has to be the possibility of bad things. And that's good and that's accurate. But Adventism, and I, we'll just have to save that for another time because our time's almost out. Adventism has a much deeper and, in my attention, opinion, far better answer. Um, and I don't have time to give that. Yeah, certainly. Certainly, yeah. you gotta, you got to be careful, yeah. Yep. The far better answer. Um, the first two chapters of Job is a far better answer. When we say, why do bad things happen to good, to good people? Um, I don't believe what we're asking is really, why do bad things happen to good people? What we're really asking is, does God really care? That's what we're really asking. Cut, cut through the chase, and it's a long conversation to get us to what I just said. But we're really asking, does God really care? And when you read the story of Job, you see that a good man suffers deeply right? And he's good. Um, Oswald Chambers says, God and Satan make a battleground of Job's soul without Job's permission. <laughs> that's well put. <laughs> and, and, and that's really what angers us. So when we read the book of Job, we get a little angst too, because we know our addies, as I mentioned in my first seminar. We know people have suffered un, uncalled for, right? And so we say, well, does God really, what we're really asking is not if God's powerful or all these things. We're asking, does God care? And when you read the book of Job, you find something really interesting. We read it and we say, God was, he did not, um, basically, we don't matter much. We're pawns. we're pawns. That's basically what it is. We say, ah, we're pawns. See, Book of Job teaches that. But what you don't, but what Book of Job reveals is that there's all these, this assembly in heaven. Satan shows up to be at this assembly in heaven, and God says, from where do you come? He says, from walking to and fro on earth. Satan could have said, I'm one of the sons of God too. You created me too. That's why I can be here. He claims entrance based on walking to and fro on earth. So he claims entrance into this assembly in heaven based on him being a Lord as well. And so, and so God quickly says, if, you're, if you walk to and fro on earth, then why does my servant Job follow me? He says, he only follows you because you manipulate him. Right? And so then God says, no, I don't. Yes, I do. You know, it's basically this argument. That, that's not what happens. And then Satan basically goes out and destroys Job's life while, while Job's wondering why God is doing this or allowing this. We read the book of Job and we say, that doesn't make sense, that's not fair. And we identify with Job's struggle because we know people or we have experienced bad things that we didn't deserve, right? And we say, that's not fair, Is a pawn. The beings at that assembly in, in heaven, they would also be watching that, where we say, Job's a pawn, they'd say, oh I bet they were completely... Actually, the first chapter of my book is titled God Is, and it's, all about, it's partially about this. They would say, wow, that fallen human being is being used by God to establish an eternal kingdom, to help, to help establish an eternal, eternal kingdom. God is using Job as evidence that he's good, and this matters for eternity. God's using Job to kick out Satan for good. That's, and so does God care? All of a sudden, from our perspective, we would go, oh man, this stinks. 
from the heavenly being's perspective, our suffering has infinite value. And Ellen White speaks of the su- when we experience suffering, that's the greatest honor we can be, we can be given. So. And the thing too is, what do you think that God would be feeling this entire time? He, he knows your heart, right? Mm-hmm. But because Satan is undermining his work, and has been undermining his work for everything, or trying to, right. um, basically God is, and I say, I use the word forced, I don't use it lightly. Right. But God is forced to be in a position, put, put in a position of, I'll let you test what I already know to be true. Right. And even as I'm letting you test what I already know to be true, I know that you deserve any of this. Right. And yet, I'm curtailing my power, and taking a step back. And I'm suffering too, as he's being tested. Right. Because he's only proving sure. what I already know to be true. Sure. So, and he's right. only through it because I'm aligned. Right, but but the Seventh Day Adventist message, guys, the Seventh Day Adventist message is the only Christian perspective that goes to the depth of your life counts. We are in a great controversy, and we are the evidence that that God is using to us and the the, the death of His Son on the cross. The death of His Son on the cross makes it possible for us to be what He wants to use us to be. We get to, when we suffer. It's not just the power of choice that exists. That's true. But it's not just the power of choice that exists. It means God, is, God sees in you a, a worthy character to be presented as evidence that He doesn't manipulate relationships, that His relationships are real. So, yeah. Right. That God is love. Right. And that's why that for me is the completion of the circle. He 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 uses us for evidence, and it's incredible. No, I mean, tell, God being in the heavenly sanctuary, the Adventist message. We tend to think of Him being in the sanctuary as, oh, this is this abstract doctrine. No, it's not. It's not this abstract doctrine. What He's doing in heaven is supposed to be having a mirror experience in our hearts. And, as, and, and He's cleansing us and using us like He used Job to show not just all the heavenly beings now, but to, to be evidence for eternity. We're going to do the same thing. If you don't like doing evangelism, you're not going to like heaven. Because throughout eternity, you're going to continually be able to tell your own experience, give your testimony about how good it is to be obedient to God. We're, we're being set up for that we're yeah anyhow um there is did you have something to say sir so anyhow that I would, i'm sorry for those of you if i'm a little confusing i haven't thought much about presenting that today but i love that concept and that that question and the adventist church guys the adventist message speaks to it at a level that nothing else does nothing else i mean your life think about this you tend to think oh, i'm just one of a few people in here today no you're not there are beings watching us and, and, and throughout eternity, we get to testify that God is good. We are the evidence that, that God is who He says, that God is love, that, that He gives good things, and that He wants the best for us. You get to be the evidence that kicks Satan out, and not just kicks Satan out, that destroys evil. We get, we get, to, be, we get to help God keep evil out. It's just the hugest honor. You're the most, when we get to heaven, I really believe if you can think of the person you want to meet, when you get to heaven, they're going to find you first. They're going to say, you're going to have Paul you know, knocking you on the shoulder. You're going to have Noah hitting you on the shoulder being like, oh yeah, I heard you're one of the people. And you're like, what? You got to live in that time. You got to live in, you got to live in that time when the mystery of God was completed. Like, tell me about it. 
You'll be like, well, wait, I want to hear about Noah's Ark. He's like, forget the animals. Tell me about, you know. <laughs> That's really, I mean, because we, we are more honored. We are going to suffer. Certainly we're going to suffer. But we are more honored to be used by God at a level that um, is just profound. So I'll go on and on. So we better, we better close. Be glad to talk with anyone um, afterwards. So. so I guess you're dismissed. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.